Is affirmation the primary mark of being a Christian? Is that what it means to be kind and loving and gentle? And Is affirmation really what we're getting at? If Christians are supposed to stand and fight for the truth, if that's what we're supposed to do, how is that possible? If pastors, leaders, Sunday school teachers are telling them that doing so isn't being nice. How about this? Is the modern practice of non-confrontational evangelism really biblical? Is it really evangelism? My name is Ed Dingus, and you're listening to the Reformed Rant, a podcast where I rant about the most important theological and social issues of society from a Reformed Christian perspective. And today, I am ranting about how pastors, elders, and other leaders in our churches have adopted the pagan practice of manipulation in order to remain in control of their kingdom. If you're listening to this, you are the resistance. talking about the menace of manipulating ministers in the church. And by minister, I mean anyone who is a pastor, elder, Sunday school teacher, professor, president of a seminary, head of a parachurch organization, you name it. Um, This descriptor fits all of them. All right. And when I say fits all of them, I don't mean that every single minister is a manipulator, an evil manipulator. Um, Not by a long stretch. But an overwhelming majority of them are. And that is regrettable. And they are because um, church discipline just doesn't exist any longer. Uh, But I'm not going to chase that rabbit. Uh, I don't want to fall down that hole uh, because I've Spent a lot of time talking about that in the past. So let's let's jump into it, um, taking a look at society and asking the question, what's, what's going on around me in the culture? What's going on around me in the church um, as a Christian? How can I get to a place as a believer where my thinking is healthy? A lot of these, a lot of good pastors do not understand that with all the competing... Uh, mindsets that are out there and the ideas that are emerging in the culture and making their way into the churches coming from what at one time 
uh, was were respectable men, men like maybe at one time Tim Keller, uh, Mark Dever. Um, I don't know if Russell Moore would ever fit that bill. Um, coming from guys like this, these ideas, David Platt, Matt Chandler, and I'm not sure Chandler would ever fit that bill, at least not with me. Not, a, not that I didn't, didn't really respect him. I just was suspicious from Chandler from day one. All right. Um, the, the issue here is helping Christians um, not lose your sanity because you're, you're looking at all of this that's going on and you know your views, your thoughts, your mindset, your ideas, your thinking about what's going on is in the extreme minority. It feels like, at times, you're the only one who thinks like you think. And that can be frustrating, annoying, um, disheartening, discouraging, and even depressing at times. So when, when, when I uh, find myself on social media combating some of this stuff, um, I don't pull any punches and I don't hold back. And uh, if, if I thought pastors were doing what they should be doing in their churches with regard to helping Christians stand up and fight for their Christianity and resist the, the cultural mindsets that are out there or the big giant cultural mindset, the pagan mindset, Maybe maybe it wouldn't be as, uh, I guess, necessary for those of us who do use social media to go out and do that. But we are an encouragement to one another. And very often these pastors and Sunday school teachers and leaders, they just don't understand that. They, they, don't, they don't get that. Um, and to be quite frank, I don't understand how you wouldn't understand that uh, because I love the truth. Uh, and I, I don't love people outside the context of loving the truth. I love people with the truth, not outside of the truth, not despite the truth. I don't hide the truth behind a curtain while I'm supposedly loving someone. That's not possible by God's definition of love. All right, so what's going on in the culture? Let's talk about the manipulation that's taking place and how it is, uh, has moved into the church and what it looks like. You need to be able to recognize this. You need to be able to, to recognize and to see when someone in the church, whether it's your local church or in the church at large, is actually engaging in manipulation. Gone are the days in our society where sticks and stones may break my bones, but words can never hurt me. I grew up on that statement, on that saying. Uh, and the, the, the thrust of it was, Call me all the names you want to call me. That's not going to hurt me. Your words have no power over me. I refuse to give them any power over me. And the only, the only, t when someone calls you a name, we, and, and to, in today's society, it's like, oh, that's so hurtful. You get a lot of damage to someone. Only if that person gives you that power to do that damage. If a, if a wolf calls me a heretic, well, I'm flattered. That doesn't hurt my feelings. 
I think a wolf probably should think of me as a heretic, right? That's, that's, that's how I, I think. I think a feminist would probably, all call, would probably call me all kinds of nasty names like male chauvinist, um, old-fashioned abuser, patriarchal, caveman type guy. Yeah, coming from a feminist, thank you. I, you know, those are compliments because that's really how a feminist who 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 buys into the the feminist mindset probably should think about someone like me, because I consider myself to be a real man, and I'm not giving up my definition of being a real man because some feminist is calling me names. All right, but. Those days seem to be gone now. It seems to be that we just, we are such weak-minded people that we give people all kinds of authority over our lives to actually hurt us and say things that call, that send us into depression. Um, not my response. It's That's not how I respond to people like that. Um, but that seems to be the new norm. Uh, second... Society, if you look at pagan society, I've talked about this before, they clearly have an affirmation addiction. We have we don't talk about this in the churches. I've never heard any teaching or uh, read any articles or heard any sermons of anybody out there on this idea of affirmation. But from my perspective and my observation, when I just look at what's going on, Affirmation is a massive deal. It goes along with this. sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. You turn that upside down on its head, and now everybody needs to be affirmed. It's the you know the trophy generation, the your special generation, the self-esteem generation, the all the focus is on Jesus loves me just for who I am. And if you listen to the songs that uh, most churches are singing these days. It's very difficult to find a song that's that a church is singing that really is just focused on uh, the amazing attributes of the God who is. The overwhelming majority of the songs have strong elements of me and what I'm going through and and that God loved me and that God saved me and that God redeemed me and now I'm going to overcome. I'm There's this huge emphasis on the individual and there's room for that to a certain degree in singing about the glories of God and the work that he's done in my life. But it has to be focused and deliberate. There has to be some discipline around uh, how these songs are selected, and they have to be examined to see, is the emphasis out of balance? Is this song more focused on me than it is on on God? And am I, I really, is my loyalty to God based on what God did for me, or is it based on the fact that he alone is God? And despite me, he still had grace and mercy on me and saved me, despite who I am. Um, so society has an affirmation addiction. This is creeping into, has crept into, as is usual, uh, the churches. 
we must be made to feel special. Society has to be made to feel special, accepted for who you are, not defective, not broken, not certainly, certainly not degenerate, evil, or wicked. I mean, those things are at the opposite end of the spectrum. When you think about a society that is obsessed with affirmation, think about that. Just first, just think about the obsession with affirmation and ask the question, what doctrine is impugned by that mindset? And you immediately think, well, sin, depravity, the whole area of, of what we call homartiology. This is the doctrine of sin, the study of, of sin in the church. And if you get that wrong, typically what will happen is that an, an erroneous understanding of what sin is, the nature of sin, how it works, will inevitably ripple back into the kind of God that you think exists. And it will also, as a matter of fact, drive uh, your behavior because your mindset, how you think about the world, how you think about humanity, uh, is going to drive your behavior. It's going to determine your actions. That is unavoidable. So this idea of society uh, and its addiction to affirmation has made its way into the church. Society has been addicted to this notion for a few decades at this point. Uh, we raise kids to feel special. We um, think that to love somebody means to affirm them. To love someone is to make someone feel special. So you get used to this being made to feel special. That's what it means to be loved, to be made to feel a certain way. To love <clears throat> and accept people, to love people is to accept people for who they are. They don't have to change. You love them for who they are. Celebrate them for who they are. Love, as defined in this way, is the highest virtue we could ever exhibit according to this society. The worst thing that you could ever do to a human being these days in our society is to withhold affirmation. That is textbook for what it means to be an unloving and uncaring person. This is the mindset of American society. Trace this out. Go back to the feminist movement. The word that I remember when the feminist movement shifted into high gear is chauvinist, 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 chauvinist. A chauvinist was painted in the worst possible light. It was the worst thing you could be. Men were conditioned as a result of this to want to avoid being called a chauvinist at all costs. Really dirty, scummy, bad, don't call me a chauvinist, right? Think about this. Psych the psychological effects, look at it through the lens of affirmation addiction, 
right? You want to be affirmed. Being called a chauvinist, you're not being affirmed. Feminists capitalized on the loving affirmation idea to manipulate behavior, especially where the issue of infanticide, abortion, was concerned. It was deemed unloving to oppose a woman's right to health care. It is unloving to think that a woman does not have control of her own body. That's chauvinistic. Neanderthal, caveman kind of thinking. The new man's desire for affirmation conflicted with his belief that abortion was wrong. Affirmation won out and abortion became legal. Shift gears to homosexuality. The word that comes to mind here is bigot. Another word is homophobia. You're homophobe. One of the most evil things, one of the most unloving things you can be in our culture is a bigot. To oppose homosexuality was the product of homophobia. And homophobia is based in bigotry. Think about that. <clears throat> Either affirm homosexuality or you are a bigot. <clears throat> Either you affirm homosexuality or you will not be affirmed as a human being. So much for your affirmation addiction. Now you're going to go into withdrawal. The words homophobia and bigot were used to manipulate society into accepting the idea that homosexuality was normal sexual behavior. Notice I used the word normal. I didn't use the word acceptable. Normal. The church today will call homosexuality a sin. But for some strange, odd, bizarre reason, she refuses to describe this sex act as unnatural or abnormal. Notice, even in solid churches, you don't hear a lot of people referring to homosexuality as unnatural and abnormal. People have become so callous to sin that it hardly bothers them to be told they are sinning. But you tell them they're not normal. Now we have an affirmation problem. And I think some of the pastors and elders know that you can, this is the line you don't cross. You can go up to the line and call homosexuality a sin. You can go up to the line and affirm the biblical truth about homosexuality that God does not accept homosexuality. But the Bible doesn't just call homosexuality a sin. The Bible says that homosexual sex is unnatural. That, is a, that it is a perverse desire and behavior. These guys won't go there. See, because everybody's a sinner in one way, shape, or form, right? So to say that some to say that a homosexual is sinning is to say they're sinning just like everybody else sins. Homosexuality is is now no longer perceived as a more depraved sexual act than committing fornication or adultery. It's the same. And those acts are natural, normal acts. They're sinful but they're in accord with biology.
Well, so too now is homosexuality. Right? This is what's happening. It isn't even a big deal in the church any longer. However, you call somebody abnormal, and that word is making a distinction between that person and the rest of society. And that is a problem because it conflicts and contradicts society's new highest of all virtues. And that virtue is affirmation. You see this manipulation around feminism, homosexuality. It's happening now around racism and a number of other issues. It's happening in the church. We have a similar thing going on inside our churches today. Pastors are busy trying to figure out how to control the members. How do we keep our church from imploding? And it's very unfortunate that many of them are behaving exactly like pagan society. Words are used to describe what it really means to be a Christian. And if you are not just like that, then your Christianity is called into question. Your credibility with other believers is attacked. Your effectiveness in the kingdom is hampered, all because pastors must be in control of their kingdoms, just like the left is taking control of pagan society. The same tactics are employed in the church that are used in the world. And in some cases, some pastors and elders do it deliberately. Others do it without realizing they're doing it. They're infected by the culture. They've adopted the practices of the culture, the mindset of the culture, and, and they haven't stopped to become a little more introspective to think, whoa, wait a minute, I'm acting just like cancel culture's acting, and I didn't realize it. So here is an area where every single one of us have to constantly step back and say, how is the culture affecting me? How is it influencing me? How is it moving me? How am I being manipulated by the culture and turning around and actually becoming a manipulator in the church? Okay, so let's talk about how the how these pastors are manipulating be fellow believers. <clears throat> the first commandment reads like this, thou shalt be charitable. And that has been revised to thou shalt be politically correct. The behavior of political correctness has replaced what we used to call charitable behavior. All Christians should be charitable toward one another. This is beyond dispute. We don't dispute this. If you're not acting charitably, then you're not acting like Christ. We would never dispute that. But what we mean by charitable now is different. What is really being said by most in our culture, in the churches, is that unless you are being politically correct, you're not acting like Christ. Because to be politically correct is being charitable now. And if you're not politically correct, you're not being charitable. All you need to do to, is to think about this for just a few minutes and you will realize, you know what, that's true. 
Yeah. We used to call this political correctness. Now it's being called being charitable, and it's accepted. It's made, it, it's made its way into the church. It's made its way into sermons. It's made its way into Sunday school lessons, to teaching, all sorts of different methods that we use to train people in the churches. And we now do it through the lens of being politically correct. It's why we won't call homosexuality a perversion, unnatural, abnormal. It's why we don't talk about homosexuality in the raw way that it should be talked about, the way Scripture talks about it. Because we are being politically correct. No, not charitable. We're being politically correct. If you were being charitable, you would call homosexuality exactly what God calls it. God is the standard for what it means to be charitable. The second commandment is you shall be nice. Well, remember that affirmation is the highest of all virtues in pagan society and becoming becoming that in the church. It is not nice according to PC culture and cuts against the idea of affirmation to call someone's doctrine or teaching or belief false. That's just not being charitable. To say that that person is espousing a false doctrine is not being charitable. What you need to say, it's not being nice. What you need to say instead is that we can agree to disagree. We're just, you know, I see it differently. I have a different perspective. My understanding is a little different from that person's understanding. That's being nice according to modern Christianity. Right? Christians are nice. They should be nice or kind to one another, especially on social media. The world will judge you using their definition of kindness, their definition of what it means to be nice. And they will reject Christianity because you are being mean to people by calling them out on social media for their false beliefs, even though they claim to be Christians. All that we're, we're supposed to do is just accept their claim of being a Christian and let it go at that and just agree to disagree on what? Everything. Notice how people who talk like this, when when they have these conversations or when they're putting forth these ideas, they never get into the details of when you should call somebody out and when you shouldn't call someone out. It's always focused on you shouldn't ever call anyone out on social media. Someone else might see it and, and think you're mean. Well, wow. It doesn't matter if people are actually claiming that God is wrong on issues like female pastors or true justice, because that's what's happening. When these people who ordain females to the pastor are saying God's wrong, Paul's wrong, the word of God's wrong. We do not have to listen to everything that Jesus and his apostles taught. Some things are up for grabs. And since it's not a salvation issue, we can agree to disagree. doesn't matter how clearly Paul said women are not to serve in positions of authority over men, nor to teach men. doesn't matter. We can agree to disagree on that. What God thinks is the last thing we seem to consider. We're worried about what other Christians think or what the world thinks. Christians should be kind to one another, and that requires that we not 
be mean no matter what. And the pagan definition of mean is what carries the day. So don't rebuke one another. When Peter withstood Paul to the face, or Paul withstood Peter to the face, what do you what do you think that felt like to Peter? Pretty pretty mean. He did it to his face. You're wrong. To his face. And the language that Paul's using is pretty direct. This is proof that, that Paul wasn't a, a modern evangelical, and he, he certainly wasn't a Southern Baptist. He confronted a fellow leader publicly, and then he told other people about it. That's a no-no. That's being mean. That's not being charitable. That's being unkind. Folks, this is what we're being told. Paul can do it, and, and these guys will preach that Paul did it, but turn around when you do it and tell you you're being uncharitable. When really the truth is you're just not being politically correct. But they use these ideas to manipulate your behavior to keep you from confronting their friends on their false teachings. This is, I mean, this is scandalous. It's about people protecting their kingdom and keeping things from getting out of control. Their control. And it's all over the church. It's happening everywhere. Uh, you see it on social media where these guys want to discipline people because they're confronting the social justice movement on social media. They're confronting heresy. They're confronting wolves. And rather than deal with the wolves, these people want those who are standing for truth to be disciplined because it's being unkind, uncharitable. They're trying to manipulate people into silence, just like the world's doing. It's no different. Commandment number three, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, this has been revised to mean that you shall never for any reason, whatever, whatsoever, do anything that might trigger even the worst of your snowflake neighbors. Don't, if you trigger one of your snowflake neighbors, you are not loving your neighbor. This is a favorite of modern false converts because it actually is the case that if you don't love your neighbor, you cannot love God. <laughs> That's true. The question then has to be asked is, what does it really mean to love your neighbor? Well, if you listen to modern American Christians, if you don't wear a mask, you don't love your neighbor. So you get manipulated into wearing a mask. If you don't get vaccinated, you don't love your neighbor. So you get manipulated into getting vaccinated. Uh, if you call a wolf a wolf on Twitter, you don't love your neighbor. So you get manipulated into ignoring wolves. This one really uh, makes me sick to my stomach because I, in my, I'm imagining a wolf coming in to tear apart the sheep and having one of the shepherds tap me on the shoulder because I'm smashing the wolf over the head with a club and warning the sheep that this is a wolf, that I'm being mean to the wolf, and that one of those sheep might see what I'm doing and think I'm a mean guy. So the wolf is being tolerated and allowed to selectively rip apart sheep that he wants to rip apart and devour, while I am being reprimanded. This is manipulating people to stop calling wolves wolves. Now, for those of us who love the truth, 
it won't work because we just keep right on loving the truth and smashing wolves over the head with our club. And we're just going to keep doing that. And someday, sooner or later, we're all going to stand before God and those people who tolerated wolves and gave wolves a pass are going to have to answer the question, why? Why didn't you do what Paul told the Ephesian elders to do? We're told that if you don't vote for liberal Democrats, you don't love your neighbor. If you think the civil government has a right to establish immigration laws, you don't love your neighbor. If you aren't fighting racism, you don't love your neighbor. So now you're manipulated to stand up and fight racism. If you oppose homosexuality, you aren't loving your neighbor. If you are against a woman's right to abortion, you aren't loving your neighbor. Based on some comments I've seen going forward, it seems to me that we could actually be in a position of if you're eating a cheeseburger, you don't love your neighbor. You could really do that right now because you could say, well, if you're eating a cheeseburger, you're eating in an unhealthy fashion. Uh, that's going to increase your chances of going to the hospital, increasing uh, medical care, which is going to drive up insurance costs, which your neighbor's going to have to help share in. And that's not loving your neighbor because you're taking money out of the pockets of your neighbor, which they could be giving to the poor to take care of the poor. Or so says, says Judas. I mean, that's what Judas said, right? And we all know that, that, that Judas was right, right? 2 Thessalonians 3.10 says, For even when we were with you, we used to give you this order. If anyone is not willing to work, then he is not to eat either. Is that loving your neighbor? How about 1 Timothy 5.11? But refuse to put younger widows on the list, for when they feel sensual desires in disregard of Christ, they want to get married. So unless a woman is 60 years old at least and she has not been promiscuous over her past and she has a good reputation and shown hospitality and devoted to every good work she can't be put on the list is that not loving your neighbor like we're not going to put you on the list because you're a fornicator or an adulterer or an adulteress you are not devoted to good works you're a busybody well, can you just forgive me and put me on the list? No, you don't make it on the list. Forgiveness of sin, well, that's between you and God. And of course, well, there's forgiveness for that, but you're not getting put on the list. Do you think Paul loved his neighbor? Because those are his instructions under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And that clashes, that contradicts with the mindset that we're hearing about loving people's neighbor. However you interpret loving your neighbor, it has got, it must be consistent with the, the text of Scripture that I just read, and there are others. I once said to someone that their presence on social media was offensive, and if they really loved me and I was their neighbor, they would cease and desist immediately. You might guess how that went over. It's like people who advocate for the poor and the homeless, which we should advocate for the poor and the homeless. We should give for the, to the poor and the homeless. We do not fight poverty. We, we give to those who are in need and we give them the gospel. There's a difference between giving to those who are poor and fighting poverty. They always demand someone else's money to take care of the problem. And we do live in a day and an age when the poor and the homeless actually think it's their right to have people help them. They think you're obligated to help them. That's their attitude. 
Interesting attitude. That isn't loving your neighbor. It's socialism at best, Marxism at worst. You shall walk in unity is the next command. And that command has been revised to mean you are never to confront professing Christians regarding their beliefs, no matter how dangerous and spiritually deadly those beliefs are. Pastors will talk about the importance of unity in the church and that being a Christian means being united with other Christians. Uh, this is incredibly important, and they would be right. It is incredibly important. But this is now being used to manipulate Christians who love the truth into not standing for the truth with other Christians, other professing Christians, I should say, who do not love the truth or who are in error or heading in a very bad direction. What does the Bible say about that kind of unity that we so often hear about? Well, Paul wrote to the church at Philippi, and he says this in Philippians 2.2, Make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. The idea that Unity is the same thing as agreeing with, with each other, or let's say it this way. The idea that unity is, is agreeing to disagree with each other is not a biblical idea. That's not a biblical idea at all. In fact, the Bible's idea of unity is being in agreement with one another. Be of the same mind. Think the same way. 2 Corinthians 13, 11 says, finally, brethren, rejoice. Be made complete. Be comforted. Be like-minded. Live in peace, and the love of God and peace will be with you. Paul is not advocating that the, that to the Corinthian church that they, they live in peace at the expense of unity. We see all the problems Paul dealt with in the church at Corinth. We see all the problems that Paul dealt with in all the churches, continually, sharply rebuking people for immoral behavior and, quite frankly, ungodly beliefs that are out of accord with Scripture. If a belief contradicts Thus saith the Lord, the belief is ungodly, not like God, opposed to God. And if Scripture is clear on what the Lord is saying about this particular issue, no one has the power or the authority to say, well, we'll just have to agree to disagree on this issue. The Greek word franete means to hold a view or have an opinion with regard to something. This is the word that Paul uses when he says be like-minded. Biblical unity is not shallow, superficial, visible unity. Unity is unity in the truth. Thinking, confessing, and living the same truth. And when someone comes along with some other view contrary to the truth, 
and they introduce a view that contradicts the truth, that is the textbook definition for heresy. Now, I'm going to pause just for a quick second on this <clears throat> idea of heresy and um, walking in unity and being humble and gracious with one another. There are some things in the text of Scripture that are not as clear as other things. In those things where we lack true clarity, where it really is or could be a couple of different options, we must be gracious and humble and admit this is a difficult passage and we don't have any other passages guiding how we might interpret that passage. In those cases, we must be gracious to one another. We must extend grace to those who might have a different take on what the text says. There are few cases where, where this is really, really the case because so much of Scripture and so much of what Scripture says about issues, it doesn't typically address those issues in just one isolated, obscure passage. There's typically several passages speaking to the same issue or several passages from which the principles of those passages are clearly uh, deduced and can be applied to other texts of Scripture that are more difficult to understand. For instance, you may, you may look at the, the warning passages in Hebrew about falling away. And those are, when you look at them in, in order to understand precisely what the author is saying to that audience, those are difficult passages to interpret. But we do have guardrails in place that help us understand what they can't, at a minimum, what they cannot mean because we have other texts of Scripture that clearly tell us that the believer in Christ with genuine faith in Christ uh, cannot fall away, cannot lose their salvation. We have clear passages of Scripture that teach that. And so the, the hermeneutical principle is, is not that you would take the obscure passage and call into question doctrines that are formulated based on clear texts of Scripture. It's the other way around. Whatever the passage in Hebrews 6 is saying, it cannot mean uh, that believers can lose their salvation because we know, based on other clear texts of Scripture, that they cannot. So that places us in a position to re-examine those texts and try to come up with some thoughts around what Paul or the author of Hebrews, Paul, what the author of Hebrews might be saying to the audience. But we know he's not saying that believe, true believers can actually lose their salvation after being regenerated because we have other scriptures that clearly teach that's not possible. 
<clears throat> that's an example, all right? In, in something like this, if someone takes that passage and they bring in the teaching that you can lose your salvation, well, I'm sorry, but uh, that's, that is a violation of other texts of Scripture that clearly say you cannot. That's a problem. That's a real problem. Now, as long as they're interpreting it within the, the doctrine of eternal security and they're coming up with views about what the author is saying that might be different from yours, but they're not saying a person could lose their salvation, well, then you have to be gracious in this case because it's not an easy passage. It's a difficult passage. That's an example. The rapture might be another example. Uh, some people think the scripture clearly teaches there is a rapture. I have tried to hold that belief, and I can't. I don't think it does. You have to be gracious in this area. Now, I cannot dogmatically say there's absolutely, positively no rapture whatsoever. I'm not going to say that. I'm going to say that the evidence for the rapture, in my opinion, couldn't be much weaker than it is. Very weak. But I'm not going to divide over that issue. Just not going to do that. Um, so the unity that the Bible is talking about is unity in the clear, clearly revealed truths of God in Scripture. We must accept those teachings. We cannot turn them upside down on their head. We cannot introduce female pastors. We cannot introduce homosexual Christians. We cannot endorse same-sex attraction where men are lusting after other men and they think it's okay or women are lusting after other women and they think that that's natural. It isn't. We must take the teachings of Scripture seriously. And for these reasons, when people are advocating these views, we cannot walk in unity with them because they are contradicting God himself. And it is not loving, it's not safe, it's not right, it's not spiritually healthy to agree to disagree on points like this, in cases like this. Romans 16, 17, Paul says, Now I urge you, brethren, keep your eye on those who cause dissension and hindrances contrary to the teaching which you learned and turn away from them. Now, we've got this thing called theological triage where some people have set up a system that if a doctrine isn't salvific, then it's okay to have disagreements on that doctrine. You can hold other views. I do not agree with that. And here's why I don't agree with that. When God speaks and says, thus saith the Lord, you shall, or you, this is how things are, or whatever the case might be. And he's speaking and it's clear. You can't ignore that. For instance, when Paul writes and says, a woman is not permitted to serve in a position of authority over a man. That's clear. Now, you can come up with all kinds of crazy explanations for what you think it might, he might be saying there, but if you look at the text, it's clear. Women cannot serve as pastors or elders. Clear. They cannot serve in any kind of leadership capacity over men. They have not been called to lead men. They cannot teach men. You do not have the right to come along and turn that upside down on its head, and we cannot agree to disagree with folks like that and still walk in unity with them. We, don't, we haven't been granted that permission. What do you think Paul would say to someone who, who disagreed with him on this point and, and decided they were going to continue to ordain female elders and pastors? You think Paul would just shrug his shoulders and be okay with that? That's, that's not the Paul that I read in Scripture. 
when the Lord speaks, it's binding. When the, when the Lord speaks with clarity, it is binding. In some cases, we don't have the same degree of clarity, and we have to be gracious. If we don't have the clarity, here's the problem with the, with the not, not having the clarity and being dogmatic. If you don't have the clarity that you would like to have on a particular text, if it's clear that the text is not clear, <laughs> we'll say it that way, and you adopt a dogmatic stand, you could be guilty of saying, the Lord has spoken when the Lord has not spoken. That's a very dangerous thing. It's no different from saying, I don't care what God says, I'm not doing it. It's the same kind of sin. We must be careful in these areas. Now, all that said, at the same time, our problem isn't that. Our problem is in the opposite direction. Our problem is a lack of love for the truth and a lack of love for the church. And because of that, we tolerate beliefs, strange doctrines, false teachings that we shouldn't. 2 Thessalonians 3.14, if anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, take special note of that person and do not associate with him so that he will be put to shame. If anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, anyone in this letter, this is a letter to, to the, the, this is the second letter to the church at Thessalonica. And Paul says, here's, what, here's how you treat people who ignore the instructions in these letters. It would be absurd for us to look at this and say, well, that, that only applies to the, sec the second letter that he wrote to, Thessal to Thessalonica. It wouldn't apply to the others. It is all God speaking. And there's nothing special about the second epistle to the church at Thessalonica. This would apply to anything written down in Scripture because it's God speaking. Note that person. Do not associate with him. Why? So that he may be put to shame. That now runs contrary to the, the affirmation addiction that we see in American society and in American Christianity. Where now the 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 most Christ-like behavior that you can display is to affirm other people, no matter what, affirm them. A couple's getting a divorce based on they've just fallen out of love. They don't have biblical grounds, and so they're going to just trash the covenant. Well, you need to affirm them, love them, put your arms around them. It's a difficult time for them. Be there for them, and that's it. No, that's not it. They are not obeying the instructions in the letters given to us by God through his holy prophets and apostles. Take special note of that couple and do not associate with them so that they will be put to shame. That's the Christian response. But if you were to say that without reference to this letter, without someone actually knowing that this text is actually in Scripture, which I, I would surmise that most professing Christians have no clue that it's in Scripture, they would, they would think you were the most ungracious, unkind, unloving, mean-spirited person on the planet. You see what's happening, folks? Even with our pastors, even with our Sunday school teachers, even with our elders, even with our professors in some cases, you have people who are convincing Christians 
that if you do what Paul instructs through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, you're being a mean person. That's the way it's framed out. Now, a lot of people do this through ignorance. They just really are sloppy thinkers. They don't think these things through. They don't look for inconsistencies like they should be. You, you read a scripture and, and you come away you come away from that scripture with a claim, a claim that you will argue is true. Well, you had better think that claim through and ask the question, is there anything else in scripture that you can read that might cause you to come up with a claim that would be incompatible with the one you're making now or inconsistent or even contradictory? If, if, that is the case, then you better stop and think that through because there's something wrong with your claim. People don't do that. We have pastors who are not doing that. They say things all the time that if what they said is really true, then there are other things that they've said in the past that can't be true because we have a violation of the laws of the law of non-contradiction. That's a real problem. God is a rational being. He's not irrational. He does not contradict himself. The laws of logic are thoughts in the mind of God. That's where they originate. That's where they are anchored, grounded. That's why you can't do anything with them. And it's why atheists have come up with all kinds of crazy alternative definitions for the laws of logic because... They know how powerful of a proof they are that God actually exists. So when we do this to one another, when we take note of these people, we don't associate with them and we do so to put them to shame. That really doesn't look like unity to the world. It looks like disharmony. But notice that Paul didn't say anything about, well, you know, if you, if you do this, the world's going to think if you do this, other churches might think something bad about it. They might think you're mean. Paul didn't seem to be concerned about that. Paul seemed to be far more concerned about the purity of the community. It's purity in doctrine. It's purity in practice, morality. First Timothy, the same Apostle Paul writing to the young Timothy says, if anyone advocates a different doctrine, does not agree with sound words, sound words, those of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, what are the words of our Lord Jesus Christ? Genesis to Revelation. Those are the words of our Lord Jesus Christ. It isn't just the sayings that Jesus issued when he was walking around the flesh. If anyone advocates a different doctrine and does not agree, so if someone formulates a doctrine that does not agree with the clear teachings of Scripture anywhere, Doctrine that conforms to godliness. Number one, if they do that, then they are advocating a doctrine that does not conform to godliness. What kind of person is that? Paul says he is conceited, understanding nothing, has a morbid interest in controversial questions, disputes about words, out of which arise envy, strife, abusive language, evil suspicions. This is a real issue in our churches. 
Look, continue to stand for the truth, even if it's your very own pastor, your very own elder, your very own Sunday school teacher, who is either knowingly or unknowingly doing everything they can to manipulate you into silence. No one has the authority or the right to tell you to shut up if what you're speaking is the truth. Real simple. And if you're dealing with wolves, don't treat them like sheep. Treat them like the wolf they are. Warn about them. Call them wolves. Call them out. You don't pet wolves. You shoot them. That's pretty simple. You shoot them. I have very little respect for pastors who do not appreciate the risks that wolves pose to the sheep. It makes me wonder about the level of love and commitment they have to the people who are under them. How could it not? You got a wolf running around, and in our case, in 2021, there are wolves everywhere. They're all over the place. In almost every church, numerous wolves. And we, we, want to, we want to agree to disagree. We want to be nice to the wolf. We want to be kind to the wolf. We want to be politically correct is what, what we mean. People are not used to seeing the church pastors, Christians stand passionately for the truth because we've been absorbed into PC culture now for a couple of decades and it's, it's, it, it has become very rare to see Christians really take a firm, strong stand, passionate stand for the truth. And now when they do, they're vilified. Told to, to get off social media and, you know, don't do these things and uh, because they want harmony. They don't want tension. They don't want discomfort. I'm, I get, I've got news for you. If you've studied church history, you will realize there's never been a time in church history where the true church has not had high degrees of discomfort and disharmony all around it and, and inside as well because the wolves are always sneaking in, trying to destroy the sheep. The believers have to continually keep an eye out and shoot the wolves. The, the, the idea of tolerating wolves is in the churches is new. You go back into church history and you see people being exiled, vanquished, banished, whatever you want to call it, put out on, uh, on deserted islands and burned at the stake, beheaded, and even drowned. And, I mean, the, the responses to heresy have been uh, cruel. But make no mistake about it. They, they've been passionate 
And there is, has always been a very sobering concern for the truth in the churches. Stepping out, stepping outside of the doctrine of the churches historically in Christianity has always been a very serious matter. Modern Christianity, this is new. It's new to, his, to Christianity. This idea of almost complete tolerance of everything. I'm going to respect your views. You reject Adam and Eve as, as, a, as a literally being created uh, by an, a miraculous act of God in the garden. Uh, that's fine. We'll agree to disagree. You advocate theistic evolution like Tim Keller. Well, that's okay. We'll agree to disagree. This is a pernicious Heresy. Men like Keller rejecting something as basic and fundamental as the doctrine of special creation. As historically understood in the church. And they get they don't only get a pass. These guys have been platformed. Their books have been sold and promoted, they have been promoted, and they advocate a pernicious, wicked heresy. And it's, it's mind-boggling. It's, it's mind-boggling how people want to come to this guy's... People, the, here's what you have going on with this manipulation in the churches. Pastors will tell people who, who, who squabble with wolves on, on social media or other places, Facebook, or in person. They will paint them as divisive and, and unkind and unloving and not acting like Christ, and they will turn around the next week and promote Tim Keller's books and Tim Keller as a person when that man has advocated pernicious heresy. Here's a guy who at, at one point was given an opportunity, a platform to condemn homosexuality clearly, and he didn't, he wouldn't do it. There's a lot wrong with Tim Keller, but there's a ton wrong with pastors who think their biggest problem are members who fight wolves on social media, all the while promoting Russell Moore, Tim Keller, Matt Chandler, Mark Dever, uh, David Platt, all these social justice guys, and worse. And you're afraid that, that someone used an adjective to describe someone on social media that somebody else might, be, might think was unkind. You need to get your priorities straight. You need to get your head on straight. If you don't love the body enough to protect it from wolves and you're more concerned about other people who are using the same kind of adjectives Jesus used to describe wolves and Paul and Peter, you don't have your head on straight. You've got something really screwed up in your thinking, your priorities. If you, as a believer, are dealing with that, be nice, stand firm. Being nice doesn't mean that you don't look at someone and, and tell them you've lost your mind. I have no problem 
looking at somebody and telling them they've lost their mind. You've lost your mind. You're worried about this? And you think that that's what you should be worried about? That's not unloving. That's not unkind. That's not not being nice. Maybe that will jolt them into reality of thinking, this may be a little more serious than I thought it was. We've turned things upside down on our head, and the reason is pagan ideas are infecting us, and we need to turn introspective with Scripture, praying for grace, the power of the Holy Spirit to open our eyes to those things where that are getting in the way of us pleasing God and standing for the truth. If you love one another, you will comfort, you will confront one another and comfort one another with the truth. Most of the time, most of the time when, when we confront each other with the truth, most of the time that is going to make both people uncomfortable, the person doing the confronting and the person being confronted. We don't know how to do that anymore. That is a huge Huge responsibility of the body of Christ. But these attitudes that are incorporated and exercised by these pastors have really uh, taken that, that duty that we have to confront and dis disciple and discipline one another and hold each other accountable. They've neutered that. They've made it completely impotent because we don't do it anymore. And we, I don't know that in the last 50 years we've ever done it uh, the way it should be done, but we used to do it more and we do it almost never now. And in fact, a lot of people who hear you describe what we should be doing with one another find it appalling. That's not loving, that's not Christ-like, that's not Christianity, oh my gosh, you're mean. If you love sinners and evangelize them, you will confront them with the gospel. And that should make them uncomfortable. It should always make them uncomfortable. They're going to be told that they are in rebellion against God and they must repent or they will come under the judgment of God. If you don't tell people that, you're not evangelizing them. Inviting somebody to church is not evangelizing people. Getting to know your neighbor and inviting them to Hickory Grove is not evangelism. Giving a person a track is not evangelism. Telling someone that they have been created in the image of God and the reason they were created was to, was to image God, to reflect God back to God and to creation and that they have refused to do that. And because of that, they are now under the curse and the wrath of God and must rep repent and believe the gospel or else they will suffer eternal damnation. That's evangelism. And that is foreign to 99% of the churches. We don't teach that. We don't talk about that. We don't get into that. Now, you, you don't have to say it exactly the way I said it, but those components of confrontation and those truths that you have an obligation and a duty to God Almighty and you are not fulfilling that obligation and there will be hell to pay, repent and believe the gospel, 
Those elements have to be in that conversation or it's not evangelism. Now, can you see why affirmation addiction is such an enemy of the gospel? The only kind of affirmation that is Christian in nature is affirmation of the truth. Jesus said, you will know the truth and the truth will make you free. Amen. This podcast is part of the Bible Thumping Wingnut Network, Biblical Christianity's marketplace of ideas. BibleThumpingWingnut.com Father everlasting, the all-creating one, God Almighty. Through your Holy Spirit, conceiving Christ the Son, Jesus our Savior.